Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today we are continuing our sermon series, Building Back Better, exploring the book of Haggai. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and would love to have you join us over there. Great. Hi guys, hope you're all well. Um, So let's read, let's read Haggai chapter 1. I have to say, I've fallen in love with this little book, 38 verses in total, tucked away towards the end of our Old Testament. You're allowed to use your index if you want to find this, because it's uh, a hard one to find. Haggai, okay, chapter 1, and reading from verse 1. So in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to build the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while the house of God remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in this kind of situation where you're living with a mess. Um, I mean, I found this in my house. I can get used to things, and after a while, I don't even notice that they're there. You know, a half-done DIY job, and after over weeks and months, you kind of almost just get used to it. You forget that it's even half-undone because it's just normal now. You know, I don't know. I mean, the other day, Jamie pointed out to me that there was no lighting in our kitchen, very little lighting. 
And suddenly I looked up and realized, oh my word, three out of six of the bulbs in our kitchen have gone, and we're just slowly living with it getting darker and darker and not realizing. And so suddenly I decided, you know what, it's, it's a good idea for me to sort this out. And so I put three bulbs in. It was amazing, the difference. We could see all of a sudden. It was brilliant. But we just do that, don't we? We go away on holiday, then we come back and we look and we think, oh my word, I didn't realize what a mess this was. And so, you know, that's what's happening with the people of God here. In uh, 587, we remember 587 BC, Jerusalem had been destroyed, uh, ruined by the... Sorry, I'm struggling a little bit with this thing. It keeps coming around. I'm going to try again. Um, Okay, let's see how we go. Uh, Jerusalem had been burnt down and destroyed. Now, some 70 years later, under a new enlightened Persian ruler, 50,000 Kenes had come back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And there was an initial flush of enthusiasm. The altar had been built. The foundations had been laid for the temple. But the work had quickly faltered. And after two years, they had given up on the whole project. Not one discarded stone had been put in place for the past 16 years. No wooden timber had been installed in this temple. It just continued to be a ruin. Now, let's not be unfair, folks, because, you know, the people were basically loyal to Yahweh. These post-exilic peoples were clear that gross idolatry leads to ruin. That's what their predecessors had discovered. After all, that's why Jerusalem had been destroyed in the first place. These people were loyal to God. They had learnt that they had to uh, honour God and not uh, compromise with idolatry and so on. And so they made the effort to trek back up the river from Babylon to their spiritual home on arrival. They had cracked on with the task refusing to go into partnership with the compromised half-pagan Samaritans. They were determined to stay pure. They had tried their best. It wasn't their fault that they had been forced to stop by the angry locals and by the new king. It was entirely understandable that they had been discouraged and disillusioned and given up. Surely. So now, 16 years later, just imagine the picture everyone trying to eke out an existence, building their homes, planting their crops, the kids clambering around on the burnt stones at the temple site. This is the new normal, but it's not good. You see, there was a prevailing apathy amongst them in spiritual matters. There was a zeal, but for selfish pursuits, as everyone looked out for his own interests rather than those of God's. Now, it wasn't wrong that they were building up their own houses and so on, but they also had to be at God's work, and they weren't doing that. But let me ask you a quick question. What would you do if you were in their position? I mean, tell the person next to you right now, or put it in the chat, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much sympathy would you have for these people? I mean, How would you feel? Come on, just tell someone. Turn around, just tell someone. How much sympathy? Do you feel sympathetic towards them? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I have to be honest. I would say, yeah, I would have a lot of sympathy for these people. I mean, they've tried, after all. They, They sure had plenty of good reasons, good excuses, why now was not really the time to build the house of God. 
And then comes the bank holiday. It's a lunar calendar, new moon. And so everybody downs tools, the farmers gather at the temple site. Uh, Haggai stands up, maybe on a stone, standing up to speak to everybody. And they sure hear something that they're not expecting to hear. Haggai stands up and shocks them all. He says, wake up, guys. Now, Haggai has this kind of spiritual ministry. Colloquially, we could put it like this. I mean, he has this very spiritual ministry, the holy, anointed ministry of giving the people a kick up the backside. And that was kind of his ministry. But listen, it wasn't just crass barking orders at people, just shouting at them to tell them to get on. No, no, no. It was much more nuanced than that. He gives them reasons. He gives them something to think about. You know, sometimes people say to me after a sermon, wow, you really gave me something to think about there, as if that's a bad thing. We're supposed to give you something to think about. That's the whole idea. (laughs) Haggai definitely gave them something to think about. He says in verse 5, give careful thought to your ways. As, as they would say in, the, say in the States, go figure. As they would say up north, think on. He says, think. Stop and think. Each of you is busy with your own house. Literally, that means they run around with respect to his house. It's like they're running around like headless chickens trying to get everything, but it's not working. And Haggai says, just wait, stop. Self-analysis, someone has said, can be indulged in to the point where it is a substitute for action. But if it does not occur, occur at all, our lives are likely to be misdirected. We do have to stop and think. And that's what Haggai tells them to do. But, you know, it's not just self-analysis that Haggai brings. Haggai gives God's word on the situation. He speaks from heaven. You know, this is the first time that a prophet has spoken from God since they've got back. In fact, for many decades, this is the first time that God has spoken. But these are not just Haggai's words. These are the very words of God. He says in verse 2, This is what the Lord says. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came through Haggai. You see, God's words are like no other words. God's words are not just a TED talk. They're not just like a motivational speech. You know, I don't know if you ever go on YouTube and, uh, you know, you see these things, don't you? Jim Carrey leaves the audience speechless. One of the best motivational speeches ever. Or maybe you see things like Arnold Schwarzenegger. This speech broke the internet. Have you ever seen that? You know, Jocko Willink. You know, you need this amazing motivation. I mean, I might listen to Jocko Willink when I'm having a little uh, workout first thing in the morning, but it's not the word of God, I can tell you. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. This speech will leave you speechless. Okay, maybe we should do that on our YouTube uh, messages, Joshua, you know, clickbait. So, you know, you would never believe what Pastor Andy LaRue said. Or or maybe Joshua Clark speaks, shocks church with mind-blowing truth, you know. Uh, But you know what? This is not just Haggai giving a TED Talk, giving a motivational speech. This is Haggai speaking God's word, and God's word brings life. 
God's word is powerful. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, the word of God is alive and active. God's word is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God's word cuts through. It cuts through everything. It cuts to the point. And that's what Haggai does. I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the legend of the Gordian knot. Has anybody heard of the Gordian knot at all? Uh, tell, tell the person next to you if you've heard of the Gordian knot. What happened in this story, you know, is this, that there was an ox cart. This is back in the 5th century BC. There was this ox cart that had been tied up by an extremely elaborate knot and by a Phrygian king called Gordius. And an oracle had declared that any man who could unravel this elaborate knot was destined to become ruler of all Asia. So years later, in the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great arrives. He wanted to untie this knot, but he struggled to do so. He couldn't do it. Then he reasoned it would make no difference how the knot was loosed. So he drew his sword and sliced it in half with a single stroke and fixed the problem. And sometimes that's what God needs to do. That's what we need to do. Stop trying to untie it. Just let God's word cut in to the issue. God's word cuts through everything. It creates something out of nothing. God's word calms a storm. God's word silences the sea. God's word brings Lazarus back to life. Lazarus, come out, and life comes. God's word brings instant peace to a troubled and anxious spirit. It cuts across the noise. It settles the matter. God's word revives the people, kindles hope in the heart, it lights a fire in the soul. God's word renews and restores and refreshes the parts that nothing else can reach. I'm looking at my brewing industry expert here as I say that. Uh, you know, but as we listen to Haggai, I think we might say, hey, this doesn't sound very refreshing. His message is kind of quite sharp, let's be honest. I mean, first of all, he says in verse 2, these people... It's like God is disowning his people. It's not like my people. It's like these people. God's like, I have nothing to do with these people. I'm fed up with them. And then he says, stop, think, as we've just looked at. And then Haggai delivers the punchline. You notice that there's a lot of things going wrong around you at this time, in your country, in your lives right now. Well, there is a reason for that. I am trying to get through to you. Anybody listening? You see, there's two possibilities. Either because the times are hard, we have no time for God, or because we have no time for God, the times are hard. And that is what Haggai is saying. Notice in verse 9, it says, when you brought the, the wheat home, I blew it away. 
Why is God blocking them at every turn? Why is he doing that? Because my house lies in ruins, while you run around, scurrying around, frantically trying to make it all work without me. With your hectic lifestyles, with your mobile connectivity, with your medication. But it's not working. Society is broken because God is not at the centre. In verse 10, he says, he uses this wordplay, ruined temple, ruined land. You know, there's a link between the state of the church and the state of our society. Now, listen, we do need to be careful as we apply this to ourselves. A way that we could respond would be to say, you know, if we put God first, we will prosper. This is commonly known as the prosperity gospel, if you like, you know. If I put God first, then I'll have better health and I'll have a bigger car. That's not the teaching of Scripture. We must be careful here. That's not what Haggai is saying. He's not saying, you know, your car broke down this week. That's because you must have sinned. That's just legalism. If we end up thinking, you know, everything that goes wrong, oh dear, I must be in a terrible, sinful state. No, 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 that's just unhelpful. But if we think at this, of this at a macro level, if we think about our society collectively, if we keep God out of the picture, you can't expect life to work out as God intended it to work. If we're working against God, no wonder life is frustrating because he's frustrating things. You know, as a society, we pour more and more uh, resources into police forces, and yet crime goes up. We invest in youth offender rehabilitation, and yet reoffender rates go up. We work so hard at our economic policies, and yet the economy gets worse. We develop our technologies, yet the globe gets warmer. We campaign against inequality and injustice, yet hatred and division between the haves and the have-nots just gets bigger and bigger. Now, those things are good things to do, but They've got to happen with God at the centre, or it's not going to work. One historian puts it like this. Their occupation of the land was part of their covenant inheritance. To enjoy it fully, they had to live in accordance with the terms set out by the landowner, who had given them the right of occupancy. Ignoring his requirements had serious consequences. Now, at a personal level, we do also need to be sensitive to what God speaks to us through this. You see, when setbacks happen, when difficulties happen in our lives, it's not that God's punishing us. Jesus was punished in our place on the cross, as we've been singing earlier. That's not what it's about. But, you know, sometimes God puts things in our ways to make us stop and think. Have I put first things first? Uh, Is there something that God is wanting to teach me through this? My loving Heavenly Father, is he disciplining me for a reason? Am I putting off something that I should be doing that God wants me to do? Is there some area in my life where I'm saying, not today, God? And God's saying, yes, today. You see, McKay puts it like this. This was the challenge being issued to them. 
to see their unfortunate circumstances as God's fatherly chastisement to recall them to himself. He was afflicting them out of genuine concern for their well-being, which required them to live in right relationship with him. So anyway, listen, this was Haggai's message. Now, you do wonder how this is going to go down, don't you? I mean, these people are struggling, they're feeling the weight of life, and Haggai stands up and kind of says this to them. You almost wonder as he finishes his little speech whether there's this kind of terrible silence, you know, as, he's, as they're standing in the rubble, and suddenly it's like a, a Wild West scene with the wind blowing through and one of those tumbleweeds going through is like, that, that, this speech didn't work. But it does work. What's wonderful about this speech is that in verse 12, we're told that the people listened. It says that they feared the Lord. Such a stark contrast to the careless indifference which had faced the pre-exilic prophets. Here, when God speaks, they actually take it to heart. The people feared the Lord. They were startled awake by the voice of God. They suddenly saw how horrific their unbelief was. The solemn reality of their situation hit home to them. Oh my word, what have we done? It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I love the way that they respond. They respond wholeheartedly to this message. Not just partial obedience. Partial obedience means partial disobedience as well. But they respond fully. They go up into the hills, they get wood, they start working. They, they, it takes three weeks before the work begins because they've got to do some planning. They've got to just finish collecting in the harvest. But they are serious about getting on with what God wants them to do. And they crack on with it wholeheartedly, demonstrating that they are truly the people of God, the remnant of God. They show their identity by their behavior. You know, this last uh, week, we have got a vine, and it has got a large number of grapes, huge number of grapes growing in our garden on this vine, and uh, they're really delicious. But no one could doubt that uh, the vine that we have in our garden is a grapevine because it's bearing fruit, it's showing grapes. And in the same way, no one could doubt that these people are the people of God because they're bearing the fruit of God, which is a result of the Spirit of God working in their lives to demonstrate that they are truly the people of God who, who have God in their midst. And in the same way, we can be confident, you know, we will respond to what God has said to us because God's word is powerful, number one. And number two, because God is at work in us through his spirit, because Jesus has made us into new creations. We're now sons of obedience, not sons of disobedience. We want to do what God asks us to do. That's our motivation now. We've been changed through the gospel, haven't we? We're now a fruitful people, a people who want to bear fruit to the glory of God because he has done a work within us. And so Haggai is incredibly encouraging to these people. He doesn't just rebuke them and leave them feeling condemned. As they respond, I love what he says. In verse 13, he says, I am with you. God is with you. Do you know that is true? God is with you. God is with us. That refrain comes again and again in the Bible, doesn't it? When we're afraid, God keeps saying, 
don't be afraid, I'm with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. It says in Isaiah, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It says in Psalm 46. Jesus famously declared, didn't he? As you go out into the world to make disciples, surely I will be with you even to the very end of the age. God is with his people. God is with his church. God is with your family. God is with you on your own. God is with us. Who can forget Paul's famous, magnificent promise? If God is for us, who can be against us? Be strengthened. Be fortified. As you put first things first, as you take care of God's stuff, he'll take care of your stuff. Don't hesitate in putting him first. Thou and thou only first in my heart. Lord, be my treasure. Lord God, we worship you. Let's pray right now. Lord, we ask you and we just say right now, we love you. We worship you. We think you're wonderful. We thank you that you've got hold of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you've made us into new people through the gospel. And we pray that there would be fruit in our lives, the fruit of obedience coming in our lives because you have changed us. May we, may we live lives that are radical for you. May we be disciples who put you first. May we be those who go out into the world to declare you first and foremost. Oh God, we pray, come and refresh us right now. Come and fill us right now. Come and anoint us so that you might be first in our hearts and that you might become first in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the guys just to lead us in a response. I'd encourage you, maybe you want to stand. Um, let's respond to what we've heard. I'm aware that there's some repetition from last week, but actually I think this is on God's agenda for us to hear this really important message from the book of Haggai. So let's respond to it together.